Well, we will be continuing in our study through the book of Acts. So if you want to open up to Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 9 this morning, if you're using the Pew Bibles, you should be able to find that on page 890, 890. working through verse 31, but I'll go ahead and just kick us off by reading the first 19 verses. Acts 1, or Acts 9, 1 through 19. Well, meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples, and he went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus, on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up, go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there, speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. And the Lord called him in a vision. Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him and restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, whom you, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. On March 21st, 1748, A man known to his fellow sailors as the Great Blasphemer could no longer work the manual pumps seeking to keep water from entering the side of the ship. With its canvas sails ripped and its splintered side, the Greyhound had been beaten in a brutal storm in the North Atlantic for over a week. So too exhausted to continue to pump, this Great Blasphemer, this sailor, was tied to the helm of the ship from 1 o'clock in the afternoon until around midnight. In the midst of that fierce storm, the sailor whose profanity, coarseness, and debauchery had often shocked other sailors, a group of people usually not known for being the the sweetest and gentlest of folk, that sailor stood there, haltered to the helm, and wondering about life, wet and curious. Raised by a mother who had taught him both scripture and children's songs, who prayed that he would be a pastor, She raised him singing Isaac Watts' songs for children. That sailor sailor stood there in the storm, despairing of life. And the words that came to his mind 
were Solomon's words of warning from Proverbs 1, 24 through 28. Listen to these words. Since you refuse to listen, God says, when I call, and no one pays attention when I stretch out my hand, since you disregard all my advice and do not accept my rebuke, I in turn will laugh when disaster strikes you, when calamity overtakes you like a storm, when disaster sweeps over you like a whirlwind, when distress and trouble overwhelm you, then they will call to me, but I will not answer. They will look for me, but will not find me. Well, years later, that sailor, John Newton, would remember that day being tied to the helm. He wrote, on that day, the Lord sent from on high and delivered me out of deep waters. Though Newton, the sailor and slave trader, he deserved to be the man spoken of in the Proverbs, the one whom God would refuse to answer. And yet he wasn't. And that's why Newton was amazed by grace, writing the famous hymn. Well, 57 years later, approaching his deathbed, Newton was still remembering and celebrating that day that God shed his amazing grace upon him. And in his diary, he wrote this on March 21st, 1805. Not well able to write, but I endeavor to observe the return of this day with humiliation, prayer, and praise. I'm sure not everyone, if not even most of us in this room, can remember the exact day when God's grace came and taught our hearts to fear, as the song goes. But definitional of what it means to be a Christian is that regardless of how God amazed us with his grace at first and made us alive by his grace at first, our lives would be those that are constantly seeking to be deepened in our amazement with God's grace. And our passage for this morning is one that vividly displays the power and wonder of that grace of God, the grace that takes a persecutor and makes him a preacher, which is our sermon title, Persecutor Made Preacher. We'll walk through the sermon in three points the converting of Saul, the commissioning of Saul, and the calling of Saul. And the argument is simple. God's grace remakes haters into heralds. God's grace remakes haters into heralds. One more time, look at the first two verses there of chapter 9. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue in Damascus. So that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Now the language used here is intentionally vivid. Uh, the NIV reads murderous threats. Literally, it's he's breathing threats and murder. That's the ESV renders it. As one who had approved of Stephen's murder, standing there watching the coats while they killed him and stoned him, Saul continued undeterred in his desire to destroy the church, to destroy the way those who follow Jesus. So passionate is Saul that he gets approval from the high priest to travel 135 miles in the ancient world to Damascus to go hunt for Christians. Just think about that for a second. In the ancient world, 135 miles, some little whisper of a rumor had come that there was some Christians of the way there. And so Saul takes it upon himself to get letters and travel all that way on foot to go and put them into prison. Now, I mentioned last week that in Acts 8 through 10, we have three conversions, three outsiders, as it were, made insiders. Last week, we began to look at the Ethiopian eunuch, and Lord willing, next week, we will see the conversion of the Roman centurion. What is fascinating about comparing these three and contrasting them is this. Both the eunuch and the centurion, Gentiles, are 
commended by Luke's language. I mean, last week we saw the eunuch had traveled all the way up from Ethiopia to go and seek God to worship him at the temple. And next week, Lord willing, we will read of this Roman centurion, Cornelius, who was described as a God-fearer, a devout man, and his whole household gave themselves to prayers and gave alms generously. Sandwiched between these two Gentile seekers is Saul, the murder-breathing Pharisee. The language here is intentionally meant to show you just how bad Saul is portrayed. Uh, Commentator David Peterson says that uh, Saul, the Pharisee, is pictured as completely lacking in any virtues that the other two Gentiles have around him. Saul is so sure of his particular reading of Scripture, of his understanding as a Pharisee, that he is murderously sure, heading off to arrest anyone who would claim the name of Jesus. And so Peterson explains how Luke uses this language that will be echoed throughout this book of enemies of God. He's stiff-necked, resisting the Holy Spirit, just as Stephen had accused him and the other Pharisees of earlier. Uh, He's set against the Lord and his anointed. He is experiencing a blinding, like later in this book, a man named Elymas will experience, who is described as an enemy of everything that is right. But that raises an important question. How is it? that this Pharisee of Pharisees, how is it this man who probably memorized massive amounts of the Old Testament, how did he not get it? I mean, he knew the prophecies. He knew the stories. He knew all the claims. He'd heard the reports that this man Jesus came and lived and died and rose again three days later. How did he miss it? Well, the short answer is there are a handful of passages spread across the Bible which declare very much what I prayed earlier, that only the Spirit of the Lord can illuminate God's Word to our hearts. Uh, Many have written about this down through the years of highlighting these particular verses. Uh, John Owen wrote a whole book on this topic, and he begins with Psalm 119, verse 18, which says this, Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things in your law. And, And Owen notes, don't you see what the psalmist understands? That God has to enlighten the reader. He requires God's help to see wondrous things in the Word. And then from there, he wends his way through other passages, but he eventually, Owen goes and he quotes from Ephesians 1, 17 and 19, which this Saul, later Paul, prays for the Ephesians. In that prayer, Saul, Paul is echoing the words of the psalmist, and he prays this, asking God to give the Ephesians a spirit of wisdom and of revelation. He prays that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened for the purpose of their knowing the hope to which God has called them to know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, which he worked in Christ. See, Paul's prayer for the Ephesians is one he could pray firsthand because he went from a man who knew the Bible well to a man who understood the heart of God in the Bible. And only God the Spirit can illuminate sinners to see the wondrous things in God's word. Only God can open the eyes of our heart, as Paul says. And so Owen explains, while many people have knowledge of the words, of the meanings, of the propositions, like the Jews, like Paul, they understand the words in their Old Testament, even in the original language. And yet, no Christian will say that they understand the mind of God in the Old Testament, apart from that illuminating work of the Holy Spirit. As a matter of fact, that's how Luke brings his two volumes together. His gospel ends in John 24, or Luke 24, with Jesus doing what? opening up their eyes so they could understand the scriptures. And Acts 1 began with what? Jesus opening up their minds so they could understand the scriptures. Jesus taught this explicitly in John 14 and 16. 
It must be the Spirit who would come and convict of sin. And he would take what was Jesus's and declare it to us. So, friends, practically speaking, that is why we must never approach reading this Bible as though it's any other book. We must always open this book first with words of prayer and petition, declaring our need for the Spirit to give us eyes to see, to allow us and enable us to behold wonderful things in the Word. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, 6 through 16, only the Spirit knows the mind of God, and that's what we need when we open this book. So we must open this book always with a prayer, Spirit, speak. And maybe if you're visiting with us this morning and you're not a Christian, I wonder if you've ever tried praying to God that he would help you understand the Bible before reading it. If not, I could not encourage you to do so more. Get a Bible. If you need one, we'll happily give you one. Open up to John's gospel, and before you read, pray God, I don't know what I'm supposed to see in here necessarily, but would you speak through your word? And friend, if you want someone to read with you, please let me know. We'd love to find people to do so. Well, let's keep reading. Look at verses 3 through 9. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. And the men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. And Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. And for three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. Well, we see here, Saul's spiritual blindness is actually now experienced physically. Being blinded by this appearance of this flash of light, uh, some have said perhaps Jesus revealed his unshielded risen glory. Whatever it is, it causes Saul to fall on the ground blinded and yet able to hear Jesus speaking to him. And did you catch it? It's repeated twice just so we don't miss it. First, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you? And Jesus says, I'm Jesus, the one you're persecuting. Which means this, that Jesus so entirely identifies himself with his church as the head of the body, as the groom to his bride, as the cornerstone of his temple, that when one attacks one part of the body, Jesus the king takes it as a personal affront, a personal attack. But I bet we don't tend to think about sinning against our fellow Christians that way, do we? I mean, I don't tend to think when I get angry with someone or frustrated with someone, a fellow church member, the King Jesus pictures me getting angry with him. We don't tend to think that we're our speaking about Christians behind their back is slandering or gossiping about Jesus, our Savior. We don't tend to think of those sins as a, an attack on the sovereign Lord. But that's what Jesus says here. He takes them personally. You are persecuting me, Saul. I mean, imagine, Christians, how helped we would be to think about our fellow Christians and our sins against them in these terms. And in case you're skeptical that this is all Jesus is saying, he's going to go on in the parable of the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25 to say at the end, when he separates people into the sheep and the goats, he's going to declare what? What you did to the least of my brethren, you did to me. Jesus identifies entirely with his bride, his body, his church. Well, another application worth considering from this section here, friend, is does your view of the church measure up with Jesus's view? I mean, do you see the church as essential to who you are? Do you see your union with Christ and with his body as definitional of what it means to be a Christian? Clearly, Jesus believes himself to be so united to his people 
but he's united to them even in their suffering. Well, how about for us? I think one of the dangers of our modern culture is that we get discipled far more from our culture than we realize. And our culture is very consumeristic, which so easily leads to us viewing the church through this consumeristic lens. We choose a church because, well, it has a singing we like, or it's convenient, or the list of reasons goes on. And now, of course, there are practical considerations. And, of course, not every place that calls itself a church is a biblical church. But I think the point here is when you see Jesus' union with his church, do we view the church and our relationship to it as Jesus does? Or do we tend to view it in a consumeristic way? I mean, are we willing to commit to Jesus' body like he is? To commit to his people as he is? To commit to walking with them and loving them and feeling their wounds? Is not that what the one another say? To bear one another's burdens? Well, a final point of application, I think, here from Jesus' union with his church that we must always remember is that his presence is with us. Always. One theologian has explained this so powerfully. He writes this, Believer, since the Lord is always present with you, be careful to refrain yourself from doing anything that would be unbecoming of his presence. The presence of people serves as a restraint against many sins. If the presence of God does not accomplish the same, one reveals himself as having more respect for people than for the majestic and holy God. Friends, set the Lord always before you. Acknowledge him in all your ways. Fear him. Humble yourself before him. Walk in all reverence and humility with him. And then he continues. On the other side, believer, let the reality of God's presence be your continual support and comfort in life. The Lord is at hand. He is a fiery wall round about you, and no one will be able to touch you contrary to his will. If something befalls you, seek refuge in him and encourage yourself with his presence. Well, the presence of the Lord, his union with his church is a beautiful thing to behold. And what Saul would one day come to understand is that his union with the church by being brought into the fellowship of God meant that his sufferings were filling up the sufferings that were lacking in Jesus. He would continue on united to these people. And he would always remember that God is always with us. On the sweet days and in days of suffering, the good shepherd is always there for us to turn to. Well, we've seen Jesus' calling of this persecutor, and now we're going to see him commissioned as a preacher. Look at verses 10 through 19. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. And the Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hand on him and restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus whom you, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. So we see here Jesus' sovereign claiming of Saul, the persecutor, and of his sovereign commissioning of Saul, the preacher. 
Now first, Jesus appears to Ananias and tells him to go to the straight street where he will find Saul and pray for his vision to be restored. And again, we're supposed to be amazed. Ananias has heard about Saul. That's how bad he was. 135 miles away, the rumors have come. Quite literally, it says, many have shared their concerns about Saul with me. But Jesus assures Ananias with those incredible words in verse 15 and 16. So important. Look again. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Jesus claimed Saul. He saved him and he called him. And if that's not enough, Jesus is going to show Saul how much he must suffer for his name. Just think on that for a moment. Jesus didn't ask Saul's permission to save him. He didn't ask Saul's permission to commission him. He didn't seek Saul's level of willingness to suffer for the name that he had just been persecuting people for. No, what we see here is Jesus is the sovereign Savior. He doesn't need permission to save and commission and send. Now, theologians label what Saul's experiencing here as God's effectual call. That is, God's ability to ensure that his call results in salvation. And Luke records this passage, and it makes it clear. That's what happens. Jesus claims Saul. He saves him. He commissions him, and he sends him. But this is a doctrine that has made people nervous, and it has been misrepresented and misunderstood. Now, some have asked about this doctrine. So they saying, so does this mean that God just calls people kicking and screaming against their will? Well, I'm going to explain this using an analogy, but I'm going to first give a warning. All human analogies that try to explain God are a wreck because God is transcendent. So I'm going to use a personal analogy story from my life to try and explain this, but I'm going to warn you along the way, it's going to fail. But let me try and explain to you how the Bible understands this doctrine of God's effectual calling with this. In two months, I will have known my wife, Jessica, for 20 years. Nine months later, we're going to celebrate our 20th anniversary. So if you haven't heard the story of how we first met, here's the short version. I was invited by a dear friend to a game night. <clears throat> and I walked into an apartment, and there were five gals sitting on a couch. And my friend introduced me to them, and later I recounted, I met five gals. It was someone, someone, Jessica, someone, and someone. I just was completely taken by her. And so I followed her around all evening in the least creepy way possible. And Jess was very kind, but for various reasons, she was clearly uninterested. I remained undeterred. So the next morning, I got up and I drove 45 minutes to her little coffee cart. She was still uninterested. I remained undeterred. Four to five days a week, for the next three weeks, I went 30 minutes out of my way, opposite direction of my drive home, to go visit her at her coffee shop. And during those three weeks... Every single day, I tried to make sure I wasn't creepy. I don't think it succeeded all the time, but that was my goal. But during those three weeks, here's what I did. I got to know her, and I let her know me. And if you've gotten to know me, I am overly, brokenly transparent. And so I did the same thing to my bride-to-be that I did to this church when I applied here. As I gave her the letter, here's six things you're not going to like about me. And I just basically laid out all the garbage to let her know. And during those three weeks, I constantly offered to help in every way I could. I, I helped install a safety light so they didn't have to get in and out of the building when it was dark because they were you know, making coffee at 5 a.m. Uh, up in Marine Drive. And, and I would empty the water container thing because they weren't on hard plumbing. And I'd refill the water. And every day, she'd go to run errands, and I'd say, do you need help? 
And every day for three weeks, she kindly said, nope. <laughs> now, here's why I tell you that story. It's a very imperfect analogy of effectual calling. See, when I called on Jess those days, my calling was doing everything I could to change her will from being not interested to interested. I did everything in my power to woo and win her, to make her respond to my call. And finally, at the end of those three weeks, I had given up asking if she wanted help. And she said, would you like to go with me? And threw me the keys to her truck. You might say my calling had finally become effectual. See, my calling didn't drag her against her will. If that had been the case, I would have ended up with a prison sentence, not a wife. No, my calling sought to make her willing. Again, no analogy is perfect, but I'd be prepared to show from all over the Bible that is how God's effectual calling works. God calls Saul like he called Abraham 2,000 years before. Abraham was a moon-worshiping pagan, but God's call wooed and won. God's call overcame the false worship and the idolatry. God didn't force. He made them willing by wooing them. So when they came and answered God's call, they joyfully answered God's call. That's what the doctrine of effectual calling is. And Christian, I would just tell you, think about your own story about how God used many different means to save you. And for many of you, how did God woo and win you? Well, through a mom and a dad who loved his word and loved you and sought to raise you so you would see it. Uh, for some of you, maybe it was you came to a church that just loved you well and pointed you to Jesus. Uh, for others, some of you, maybe it was a sermon that hit you like a bolt of lightning and knocked you on your backside like Paul. Whatever it was, God uses means to accomplish his ends. And just because God uses a lot of means over a lot of years does not mean that his call is ineffectual. Now, God always uses means to accomplish his will, sometimes radically so, as with Saul. But God calls and saves his people. That is what John will say in John 6. All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and I will raise them up on the last day. Oh, what hope we have in that. Oh, sure, there's mysteries about the details of how does that work with human responsibility. Ah, absolutely. There's all sorts of details that bring up questions. But what is crystal clear in this text, God does not ask Saul's permission to save him, to commission him, and to send him. No, Acts has already shown us that just because God's call is effectual, that doesn't mean that we are not to repent. No, no, no. Acts has shown us. Repentance is both something God grants and it's something we are required to do. So we dare not say either or when the Bible says both and. And two more times in this book, so powerful and important is this conversion story that Paul's going to repeat it. And every time he repeats it, he does the same thing, emphasizing Jesus' claiming of him and commissioning of him. And so important is this to the Apostle Paul that in Galatians 1, 15 and 16, he tells the story again. In their time, he wrote this. When God, who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Saul's conversion and commissioning show us the glorious power of God's grace. How God's grace took a man breathing murder and threats against the church and persecuting them to being a persecuted preacher of Jesus Christ. This is why William Perkins explains salvation this way. Our salvation, friends, stands not in our apprehension of Christ, but in Christ's apprehending of us. Jesus' apprehending of Saul 
made him willing. And the text shows us that because what is he doing in verse 11? After Jesus has called him, he's praying. He's sitting there praying. He's been confronted by the king. And so he sits being made willing. Lord, what have I missed in your word? What have I lost? So that when Ananias shows up and lays his hands on him, he can rightly say, brother Saul. Because Saul's been claimed by the king. See, God is displaying the power and wonder of his grace. Already in this book, we've seen God's immediate judgment of those who harm his church. Ananias and Sapphira were struck dead. That's what Saul deserved. But instead, he got amazing grace. How sweet the sound. Or as the other hymn puts it so well, friends, that's why we can sing, Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God. He, to rescue me from danger, interposed his precious blood. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. But Christian, do you see God's grace that way? Do you see God's interposing, that is intervening, placing between you and the wrath you deserve, the precious blood of his son? Do you see God's grace for what it is, the marvelous, infinite, matchless grace freely bestowed on all who believe? Do you daily marvel and stand amazed at God's grace, the grace that has called you and sought you and saved you. Thomas Watson spoke of our need to meditate on grace this way. The meditation of the excellency of grace would make us earnest in our pursuit after it. We dig for gold in a mine. We sweat for it in a furnace. If we meditate on the worth of grace, we would dig in a mine for it. So then he closes with a question. Friend, what sweating and wrestling in prayer have we been led to by our meditation on God's glorious grace? That's what Saul's conversion is meant to draw us toward. A constant meditation on the wonder that the creator took on flesh and died and interposed his blood for the creature. A Christian, if you want to grow this year, seek to daily praise and thank God for his grace. Daily pray he will grow you in your understanding and awe of it. And if you're here and you're not a Christian this morning, I hope and pray even now that God is using the means of you being here to make you willing to hear his call because his call goes out That friends, no matter how much or how deep you think your sins have been, Saul was breathing murder against Jesus' body. So friend, whatever your sin might be, there is more grace in God than there is sin in us. And that's why many have have written and and thought and sung about this in years past. One of them, beautifully, Charles Wesley, thinking through this reality of how can God's grace overcome even my sin. And so Charles explodes with praise this way. Depth of mercy, can there be mercy still reserved for me? I have long withstood his grace, long provoked him to his face, would not hearken to his calls, grieved him by a thousand falls. Yet... There for me the Savior stands. He shows his wounds and spreads his hands. And so in the final stanza, he prays to God and then challenges himself. Now, God, incline me to repent. Let me now my fall lament. Now my foul revolt deplore. Weep, believe, and sin no more. Friend, if you have yet to turn to Jesus, I assure you he stands ready to save. Ask him to grant you repentance, to give you eyes to see and a heart to understand the truth of his gospel and you will know the gracious provision he has in his son. If you have questions, I'd love to speak with you afterward. Well, now we come to the final point, the calling of Saul, verses 19b through 31. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. 
At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who called on his name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. After many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan day and night. They kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him into the apostles. And he told him how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him. And how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with him and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. And he talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Then the church throughout Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened, living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It increased in its numbers. Now by calling here, I'm using it in the term of vocation. So Paul's call to salvation, his commissioning, and now his call to vocation. And Paul was zealous as a Pharisee, and now we see he's zealous as a Christian as well. Uh, though the Lord has given him a new heart, taken his heart of stone and given him a heart of flesh, his instincts, his passion have not gone away. Now, uh, later when Paul recounts his story in Galatians 1, uh, he tells about how he immediately went off to Arabia for three years and then went back to Damascus before proceeding to Jerusalem. Luke skips all those details here, so we don't know the precise timeline of how things work. Uh, Luke's point, rather, is that he's trying to show you a pattern in Saul's life. That's why he gives you these two little stories real quickly, first in Damascus and then in Jerusalem. And the pattern is this. Paul preaches boldly, and then he's persecuted or pursued to be persecuted. Again, just as with his violence, the rumors had spread far and wide, so too did the rumors of his alleged conversion. I say alleged because none of the disciples believe him. And so that's why Barnabas, good old Barnabas, has to come along and help. But before we get there, did you notice how Luke mentions how Saul grew? Well, as with Jesus, we saw in Sunday school this morning, the apostles, too, had to learn and grow. So by way of application, I'd say to all of those called to serve in ministry, particularly elders, pastors, you must be those hard at work in growing. That's why Paul will later write to a young pastor, Timothy, of this need in 1 Timothy 4, 15, 16. He says, be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Paul was instructing that young pastor to do what he had done. He had grown. Paul gave himself to the hard work and those around him saw his progress. And the same calling is upon all pastors and elders. We are to be those who are always growing better handling God's word and serving God's people. As time goes on, Paul says it must become clearly apparent to the church that we have progressed in the ministry of the word. It must be clearly apparent to the church that our ability to communicate rightly, to apply powerfully, and to counsel wisely with the word is progressing. So to serve as an elder or pastor is a commitment to constantly be pressing on and studying and growing and loving God's people well. 
And while that's true for pastors, though, it should be true of all Christians. We should all be those of whom it can be said that eventually, over time, our fellow Christians will see our progress. Uh, They'll see us growing in our love for and knowledge of God's Word, and our application of it in our lives, and and our application and counsel to other people in it growing in our confidence in God's words. So so parents, start while your kids are young. Let them see you progress in God's word. Moms, home with kids. I know it is hard at times to try and focus on your personal growth in God's word with such a busy home. Learn to and pray that the Lord would teach you to be thankful for even those interrupted times because their kids are seeing your progress. Even though you feel frustrated and can't get the study you want in, the kids are seeing your progress. Dads, build a pattern in your home to read the word to your kids. Start with children's Bibles and work your way up. Grandparents, when you're with your grandkids, seek to incorporate God's word how you can. Maybe read a psalm before dinner and then pray for dinner out of that psalm. Or read a psalm after dinner. Find a way to let your kids, your grandkids, your family See your progress in the Word, your commitment to progressing in the Word. Well, Saul's ministry was growing. He was progressing in the Word and the proclaiming of Jesus' name. And almost immediately, he experiences suffering or persecution. It says the Jews sought to kill him. As they did with Jesus before, they plotted and planned and sought to kill this one who proclaims Jesus. And Saul is led out through a, a hole in the wall, a basket, and dropped down, and then he takes off and heads to Jerusalem. Now, this must be after the three years he's gone off into Arabia, we learn about in Galatians. But we read when he gets to Jerusalem, again, people are scared of him. They're not quite convinced he's a disciple. But Barnabas, the son of encouragement, goes, and he takes him before the apostles, and he tells them about the Lord appearing to him, and how he's been preaching the word boldly. Well, again, in Galatians, we learn that Paul was there in Jerusalem for 15 days, but here it says he went in and out freely, so it seems like probably Barnabas introduced him pretty quickly, and for those two weeks, he's moving in and out. And it says that he's preaching and engaging with the Hellenists, quite possibly, if not probably, the same Hellenists whom Stephen debated and who killed him just two chapters before. The persecutor has been made a powerful, but also a persecuted preacher. Now, we only see the first hints of all that Paul will suffer in his long ministry. But already this theme is introduced, that Saul is going to be a suffering servant like Jesus. Uh, Let me take a moment to explain this theme, because it is critical. It's one of those themes that holds the Bible together, this idea of servant. It actually begins back in the garden with Adam. Uh, The words used of Adam there is that he is to work and serve. Adam is a servant. And then after Adam, we go along and we find Noah and Abraham and David. And on down, you can trace the, the key servants in the Bible But the the most uh, condensed or the most uh, tightly defined section where it talks about the servants is in Isaiah, particularly chapters 50 or 40 through 56. There we read about this servant, the Lord's servant. And at first it's clearly corporate. It's clearly speaking of all Israel. And yet Israel fails to be a servant. And so the servant is then changed to be a single individual servant. So first we read things like this, Isaiah 42, 6 through 7. I, Yahweh, have called you, the servant. I will take you by the hand and keep you, a light for the nations to open eyes that are blind. That's the corporate servant, but they fail to do so. And so going on in Isaiah 49, verse 6, Yahweh continues. Is it too light a thing that you should be my servant and raise up the tribes of Jacob and bring back the preserved of Israel? Now it's a single servant who's raising up the tribes of Jacob. 
and I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. And then in Isaiah 53, the famous suffering servant passage, where we read, well, there will be one who is the servant of the Lord, and he will come, and like a sheep led to the slaughter, he will remain silent, and that sheep will bear the burden of the sins of his people. We talked about that last week. And right there, the, the song right before that servant is Isaiah 52, 6 and 7, where the Lord says this, My people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day, they shall know that it is I who speak. Here I am. How beautiful upon the mountain are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, and who says to Zion, your God reigns. So clearly Jesus has come, and he is the true and final suffering servant who bore the sins of his people. But that corporate element of the servant that began where God's people Israel were meant to bear his witness to the nations is now found to be flowing from everyone united to Christ. And so early, we saw Stephen was a kind of suffering servant, and, and Peter is a kind of suffering servant, and John, and the apostles, and Saul in particular, Paul. And eventually, he will show us how we are all those united to Christ and are his witnesses to the ends of the earth. So see, Jesus unites to his people, and he makes them his witnesses, his servants called to declare him in a world of opposition. Now, some have a special calling, like Saul, Paul. Yes, exactly right. But we are all those who are to be a witness, which is why this section ends in verse 31. It says, Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened, living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It increased in number. How did it increase in number? Because they're being witnesses. They're being servants. It's almost written as if Saul's taking the heat so the church can grow. You get two stories back to back of Saul being this suffering servant. He preaches and then he's attacked. He preaches and he's attacked. That's going to go throughout the rest of the book. And then in verse 31, you get this picture of, and the church had peace. Well, that's the first time in Acts, really, the church has had peace, is it not? And it's not going to last. It will continue. But Saul's life becomes one filling up the sufferings of Christ so his people can be witnesses. Oh, maybe the last point of application. I think we Christians in America, if we're honest, we have never faced real religious persecution and opposition. We are those who have experienced a whole lot of peace. We live in a country that allows us to worship freely. But the question is, friends, has our long season of peace led to our growing in the fear of the Lord as it did for the church here? Has our peace led to churches being dedicated to the word and prayer? In other words, has... Christianity in America taken full advantage of the peace that we have. Oh, yes, there's plenty of wonderful stories about missions and the many missionaries been sent out. Oh, yes. But friends, I think if we're honest, we see how this peace has not always been stewarded well. We can all see at times how we've squandered this peace, getting ourselves far too interested in politics than in the peace that the king brings. I think we can all see how religious peace in our country has not always deepened us as we should. It has not always led us to prayer and preparation for future suffering, but rather it's led us to think it's always going to be this way. I think at times our experience of peace has led us towards complacency, but here it led towards them growing in the fear and awe of the Lord. And friends, that's why I opened with the story of John Newton and his experience of God's amazing grace. Because Newton lived to be 82 years old, and he continued to preach and have an active ministry until the last two years or so when his health began to fail. And one report reads that Newton never ceased to be amazed by God's grace. 
right before his death, he said this, my memory is nearly gone. But I remember two things, that I am a great sinner and Christ is a great savior. See, I've said the argument from this passage is this. God's grace remakes haters into heralds. And though no one in this room has been a hater of the church like Saul was, what this passage shows us is that Jesus takes all sin against God's people personally. And so we really are those haters. So the question is, friends, can we join with Newton in saying, we are great sinners, and yet we have a great Savior, one who has remade us haters and made us heralds of his amazing grace? Is that true for us, church? Are we growing to be the servants and heralds of God's grace that remade us, that we can declare to the nations, even if that means we're going to be suffering servants? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your amazing grace, for the wonderful, matchless grace that we read about here in this story of you converting the Apostle Paul. And Father, we would ask that you would, Lord, help us to so meditate and ponder your marvelous grace, that it would make us the heralds that you've called us to be. And Lord, that we'd get to see your grace work in the lives of, of those who you will call to yourself. Oh, we ask that you would do that now. This year, this decade, Lord, would you spend the rest of our lives allowing us to witness as we ought. And Lord, would we get to see you work. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.